today I'm joined by a very special guest, Mike Casey, jazz musician extraordinaire. Uh, we've been working on this for a while. And I'm just really excited to finally, you know, finally get to sit down with him and, and have a nice little talk. So thank you for joining us and thank you for, you know, taking time out of your out of your day and your busy schedule to, to talk with us. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Dario. It's a great pleasure to be here and I'm glad we were able to to make this happen. Yep. And um, so we'll just get right into it since, you know, we don't have you for too long. You recently dropped your studio debut called Law of Attraction. And I guess we're just going to have a kind of short conversation about how things have been going with it, kind of the process leading into it and everything. Sure, sure. It's uh, It's been great so far. Uh, the album has been supported far and wide. So I'm, I'm really happy with the reception and it feels great to finally release it because the journey began um, years ago, really. And it, it was recorded in July, 2018. So it's been a long time coming. <laughs> yeah, that is a long time working on, on one project, but I'm sure it feels um, really good to get your, I guess your debut project on your full vision out there for the whole world to see. Absolutely does. Yeah. Uh, I've been meaning to release a studio album for a while after two live albums and a remix album of the live albums. Mm. So uh, yeah, it feels, it feels great to finally have presented this to the world. Yeah. And I guess that kind of, I mean, one of my first questions was kind of the response you answered that you, you said that you've been really happy with the response so far. And I guess I kind of wanted to go into what was, was there any sort of theme or what was your thinking going into creating this cohesive project? Like what was your goals with the music particularly? Sure. So <clears throat> at that time in my life, I was, I was getting ready to actually go abroad for a year. Um, I, I had gotten into a year long master's program with Berkeley college of music at their Valencia, Spain program. Yeah. And um, that was that I, it ended up being an amazing year and that's actually where I made the remixes. But um, at that time, you know, I was really feeling like things were starting to gel at a high level with my band and it had been coming up on two, or over two years at that point since we had last recorded anything because my first two albums, which were released in 2017 and 18 were recorded live at a show in 2016. And we had, we had just grown a lot since then and I'd grown a lot and I wanted to make sure that I documented the chemistry we'd been developing before it, before I went away for a year, because I knew that, uh, you know, music reflects life and, and what was about to happen to me was going to be a massive change yeah. uh, for the better. But still, I was really happy with, with where things were right at that moment. And I'm really glad we were able to squeeze in two days in the studio right between um, a couple gigs we did, which is like the best time to, to get in there because uh, especially when you, when you're touring and you, and in the jazz world, like just being in shape on your instrument and, and feeling there's a certain connection in the air that you really are going after. And of course you can go into the studio cold, but it's not as good as if you are coming off a few gigs and you know, your the vibe is high as we might say. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's kind of like sports. Like you need those reps. You need to be, you know, in rhythm. Exactly. Exactly. And, and you know, nothing, you know, there's, jazz musicians like to say there's gig chops and there's shed chops and, and shed chops is like the shed we call is the practice room. We yeah. say the shed because Charlie Parker used to say he, he would go into the woodshed to practice. So usually when, when a lot of guys go into the studio in jazz, because of how the way the jazz world works, it's not always that common to be gigging 
doing creative gigs, I should say, like with your own original music constantly yeah. and, um, you know, timing it around when you are doing a creative gig is really helpful because then you can kind of have both sides going for you and you feel confident going into the studio, like your, your shed chops are there and your gig chops are there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So most of this was recorded, uh, before you took the trip to Spain. It was, it was all recorded before I took the trip to okay. Spain. Um, the songs were written anywhere from one month to several years before the recording session, though. So a song like Shift was actually written probably 2014, 2015 time, back when I was living in Hartford, Connecticut. And the band and I were all living in like the same neighborhood in, in this tiny city. Um, and, you know, it just takes a few a few tries in the studio to get something and We'd been trying to get a take of shift for a while and um every live show we recorded it that song was eluding us so it took mm. took several years to finally document that one okay for example and it's also like a visual album so you have uh i think a music video for every single track it's basically you guys performing it live and the intensity you can see everything you can really feel the music and i think it really brings alive the music in a way that just listening to it doesn't was that intentional thanks yeah it, it was exactly what i was going for um i've always felt like you know there's in my music at least i i didn't want there to be that much of a difference between how i approach playing in the studio and playing live in certain aspects and um of course certain aspects should be different i mean actually one of the things i learned at berkeley spending a lot of time in the studio is that uh, you know, it can save you a lot of time and headache later if you have a certain, if you have certain um, mindset and goals going into the studio versus just showing up and hitting as if it's a gig. Uh, but I still like to keep a live element as much as possible in my music. So, you know, there's no isolation, as you can see in the videos. We yeah. don't even have headphones. I mean, yeah. it's like very low tech. Um, there's no studio tricks. And spontaneity really is the thing you know, a lot of people try to define what jazz is and isn't, and that's a whole rabbit hole. But to me, one of the most important things that makes something jazz or not to me is the level of group communication happening at lightning speed constantly. That's to me like the spontaneity, the the live part, you know, that you can't rehearse. Yeah. Because, you know, you have improvisation in other styles of music, like blues has improvisation, jam band stuff has improvisation flamenco even has improvisation but it's not really the same as the way we do it in jazz music and that's because of the amount and the level of group communication the risk taking you know um and that that's something that i always want to preserve in my music i don't unless it's electronic if it you know if it's if it's an acoustic thing i want it to be less produced in a certain way and just more yeah. like we're just feeling and we're all jumping off the cliff together okay yeah, I mean, it definitely comes through in the, in the videos. Like, it definitely felt raw and intense. Like, you really felt like, like I said, you can really feel the music in a way that you just don't necessarily get just from listening to it. And I think another thing I noticed is the specific covers that you chose. Um, Daniel Caesar's popped up a couple times, and then there's also like a Jay Z and Kanye um, version of No Church no in the Wild. And I guess my question was, why those specific covers and was there any specific way that you chose to approach them? Sure. Sure. So 
No Church in the Wild is a song that is long one of my favorites. I'll never forget the first time hearing it on the radio when I was probably a senior in high school and just got like goosebumps everywhere. Just thought, wow, like that, that's a song that one day I want to, I want to do my own version of and finally uh, got it together many years later. Um, I always felt like that song had a certain, it, it almost had like, like a certain intensity in it that was simmering. And in the original version, the simmer is cool. The simmer is very like, it's intense, but it's, it's not really climaxing. It's like bubbling. Right. Yeah. It always feels like it's just building up the entire time, you know? Exactly. But it never really climaxes. And I, I wanted to make a version that like, I thought to myself, like, if I'm going to do a version of no church in the wild, I need to kind of top that as far as intensity level. So I structured the arrangement in a way where we still have the the bubbling in the building the entire time, but it it we try to take it further. So you might notice there's like two, there's actually two intros, which is kind of rare. Um, and they're so long that I had to like cut it up into like intro and radio edit. And like the radio edit still has its own intro. <laughs> um, so I, you know, I set up that intro to have it be like a really big, grand opening really intense really powerful and then you know break it down and build it back up and there's all these parts in the song where we're breaking it down building it back up breaking it down building it back up but each time we do that it gets bigger and bigger and bigger um and at the i feel like the climax is really at the very end where i'm i'm playing i'm actually playing kanye's sung uh part in the song as like an outro um so yeah, that's that's a little bit about No Church in the Wild. And for the Daniel Caesar ones, that was a little bit more recent. You know, I let me think, Freudian probably dropped 2017 around that. And yeah, somewhere around there. Right around, yeah, something like that. And right around then I was going through a lot in my life, and that album brought me so much comfort and solace and peace, and still does. And uh, I just, you know, I just thought to myself, this is some of the greatest songwriting of my generation that I've ever heard. So I thought, you know, I'm going to do what, what jazz musicians have always done is, you know, reinterpret the the popular music of some of substance that is of their time. And I just thought, you know, these two songs really spoke to me and um, I wanted to twist them around in my own way and do something a little different with each of them. And uh, hopefully I'll do more Daniel Caesar in the future. There's a few melodies of a bunch of his melodies sit really well on the saxophone. It's kind of interesting. Yeah. That was my question. I was like, does is there something particular about his music that lends itself to jazz interpretation? I would say there is. And, and, you know, it's funny that having something transfer well to the saxophone is like the first filter I go through when I'm searching for songs to reimagine because a lot of popular music today, unfortunately, it's just too pentatonic um, or not melodic enough to really transfer. And what I mean is people might find a catchy melody and without thinking about it, they're like, yeah, I enjoy it. That's a good melody. But if you take the words away, there's actually not much there. And it would kind of sound stupid if uh, someone just played it on a saxophone, if it's three notes over and over. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, it's not, it's also not specific enough. Like there are so many songs that are just the same four or five notes in a similar fashion, right? So it's about finding songs where the melody without the words is specific. It's specific enough where if you play it on a saxophone, people will recognize it. Yeah, I guess, I mean, 
most people, even I don't like necessarily think about it, but even like particularly when like hip hop where hip hop is now, a lot of the, the melodies, like you pointed out, they come from, you know, the actual artists themselves, like the singing and the, and the word choices and the way that they present it vocally. And then I guess when you do take the, that apart, the, the what's underlying is pretty simple and like unrecognizable. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that's something that has been, it's definitely a challenge when searching for songs to like reimagine because if, if I do, I know I've, I've been on gigs before where people will come up to me and ask me like, Hey, can you, can you play like rack city or something? And it's like, that's two notes. It's like, if I play yeah. rack city on the saxophone, you're not going to know it's rack city. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? That sort of thing. So it's definitely key to, to find those, those, what I call golden melodies. And I think it's a lot of it just comes down to like a certain standard of songwriting where, you know, I like to think of like, like Stevie wonder is a great example of this. Like any Stevie wonder song, they're all so strong, just the song, you know, compositionally yeah. speaking. That you can, yeah. yeah, you it's instantly recognizable, but more than that, you can take it in a ton of different contexts. You can play it instrumentally and it'll still sound great and you'll know which song you're playing. You mm. can play it in a bossa nova feel, you could play it in a rock feel, you could you could just switch it up an endless amount of ways and you'll both still recognize it and it'll the song won't collapse. You know, and that's really yeah. what I search for when I'm finding songs to to reimagine. How malleable are they, and how recognizable are they? Okay, yeah, I mean that's great insight because I guess you don't really think about that when you hear a song. You think, oh, everybody knows this, but like you said, underlying it's how kind of how fleshed out it is. And that's like I pointed out, like hip hop and a lot of modern pop isn't necessarily the most complex these days. And I guess yeah. so. You've shown that you like. Have, you're a big fan of all types of genres that you've shown, like in your in your music and the remixes and everything. I guess jazz in its current state, how do you see that kind of affecting jazz and jazz, its role in popular music like nowadays? Mm, that's a great point. Um, I think jazz is making a big comeback these days with um, the younger generation, um, largely due to streaming, which I think is awesome, as well as um, continuing to collaborate with hip hop with, with hip hop artists, which has been part of the jazz lineage and the hip hop lineage since the beginning. I mean, Kendrick Lamar to Pimp a Butterfly is an amazing album, but I hope people listening that like that album also go back to the nineties and look at what Branford Marsalis was doing with Buckshot LaFunk. And, yeah. you know, there's, there's decades of that tradition already here. It's not, it's not groundbreaking in a sense that jazz and hip hop are together, right? That's yeah. a media narrative that, people are playing on, uh, but it's, it's really been here forever. So I think that continually reinventing, um, itself in new ways with new artists is key to that for sure. Um, I hope one, one thing that's a little bit of concern to me is that a bunch of modern jazz is sounding too produced these days and it's really missing all the risk taking. It's missing the spontaneity and it's missing, you know, it's, a minor nine chord just because there's a more complex harmony doesn't make something jazz, you know, mm. like actually a lot of it comes down to rhythm more than harmony. Um, in my opinion. And I think if you ask most jazz musicians, they would say rhythm is much more important than harmony. So I just hope that the jazz artists that are crossing over, um, like myself and, and others that are much more popular than, than I really think about that and think about like the responsibility of not, watering down what makes this music what it is in the first place just to 
what I'm saying is you can, I incorporate tons of elements in my music. My yeah. goal is to do that, but my goal is to also not lose the thing that makes it jazz because at that point I'm just playing instrumental hip hop or instrumental R and B or I'm playing another genre really just on the saxophone. So I hope that that listeners are kind of aware of that sort of thing. And, and also that artists are thinking about that because I think it is possible to balance both. Not everyone will like it. Some plenty of people will think my cover of no church in the wild is way too intense and way too edgy for them. That's fine. But that's kind of the balance I'm talking about. Like we didn't just play a cover of a Jay-Z song and mellow out and chill, right? Like yeah. we, we tried to get really creative with it and took a ton of risks and really like we're down to fall flat on our face to make that magic happen. And that's something that I wish was happening more um, and moving a, less away. Le- I, I hope there's less and less of like this super produced jazz stuff in the future because it just you know, it's just, I don't know, like overdubs and all that sort of thing, unless it's electronic, that's a little different. But if, yeah. if it's, if it's being built, if you're saying it's acoustic jazz and then it's, it's just very safe. It's like, what's the point that to me at least. Yeah. I mean, especially like from this generation, younger generations, I guess jazz can feel like such an intimidating thing for people to approach. Yeah. But I also think that like, your project after listening through it a few times is I think it's what it manages to do is it keeps that kind of jazz tradition while still being uh, easily accessible for people who aren't necessarily, you know, um, knowledgeable about jazz and and the music itself. Thank you. Yeah, that, that, that was, that's been the goal. That's always been the goal. Um, Just to kind of, you know, build a little bit of a bridge there without, without, um, you know, going too far in either direction, I guess yeah. that makes sense. Um, cause I always love the jazz tradition, always will always have, but I'm also, I'm also getting bored of, you know, playing the old songs all the time. So that's why I search for the, the standards of my generation to, to reimagine. I think that's really important to do as a, as a jazz artist. I mean, that's what Miles Davis was doing 50 years ago. He was taking the pop songs of his generation and playing them in his own way. So that that is part of the jazz tradition that I'm, you know, I'm always interested in exploring and, and upholding and reinventing in my own way. Yeah, I, I mean, I've definitely seen jazz making a comeback. Like you said, like I've seen the interest in it growing, especially in the younger generations. And, you know, there's a lot, of, a lot of jazz artists crossing over, but then there's also a lot of pop artists that are crossing back the other way. Um, like for me, for example, like there's Jacob Collier, who was nominated for... I think best album this year. Then there's also artists like King Cruel who have that jazz background. Are there any particular artists that cross back the other way that you are a big fan of? When you say cross back the other way, you mean from outside of jazz into jazz? Yeah, like we'll approach it from a pop uh, sensibility, but then incorporate you know a lot of jazz elements into their pop music. Yeah, I would say. I mean, Jacob Collier is definitely one for sure. Um, I would say. Um, yeah, he's probably, to me, he's probably like the most, he's like the number one guy I could think of in that, in that realm. Um, because I hear, I hear jazz in his music very compositionally. It's like at the, it's at, it's at at like the, uh, the foundation of his compositional practice, even if there's not an improvisation. Um, 
a lot of times when I hear jazz in a popular context, it's just like, it's, uh, you know, just a little bit more comp complex harmony, which for me isn't enough to really consider just because there's, for example, there's great Motown music or soul music that has complex harmony, you know, and it's straight up R&B just with great harmony. That doesn't necessarily mean it's jazz influence to me. Okay. Um, but Jacob Collier is definitely one that I, I, uh, I'm kind of, I'm constantly amazed by, I saw him at the North Sea Jazz Fest and the amount of genres he put into one show was just yeah. like, <laughs> it's ridiculous. It's really, it's really something. Um, yeah, I'm excited to see how he, how he, uh, continues to build. And funny enough, I was just reading about him the other day. I didn't realize that we're almost the same age. I always thought he was younger than me, but he's like one year younger than me. Wow. Yeah. Hey, well, I think if, I think if he wins, if he manages to win somehow this best album, I think that's a great sign for jazz and future for sure. I think more people will, will kind of see what he's doing. Yeah, I, I hope so too. I, I really hope he wins. I think this kind of reminds me about like Esperanza Spalding winning Best New Artist like 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, and that was a big deal when she, when she won because I think she was the first ever jazz artist to win Best New Artist. Um, Whereas Jacob Collar, he's, you know, he does a little bit of everything. I wouldn't say he's solely a jazz artist, yeah. but he definitely, you know, has that as a huge part of what he does. And I, I don't see that um, leaving him anytime in the future, but I hope he wins because he's, I think like as far as best new artists, pound for pound, like musicality and talent and skill, he's like at the top. Really. Yeah, I, I mean, it's just an, it's an amazing guy. Yeah. All right. And I guess, out of the, out of this whole project, Law, Law of Attraction again, that's available I think everywhere. Is there any particular song that stands out to you the most? That's your favorite. Mm, that's my favorite. That's a that's a great question. It's hard to pick a favorite. Um, I would say one that I think is a little bit overlooked. Maybe is well, there's two. I have to I have to pick one for alto and one for tenor. <laughs> but um, Squeaky Wheel which I have two takes uh, like, of on. Yeah, that's on alto. And that, that is a, that's a composition I'm really proud of. It's about persistence. Um, squeaky wheel gets the grease. Um, it's definitely more experimental and, and, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's experimental. And it's also, I think the culmination of a certain sound I was reaching for, for a long time, still reaching for a little bit. Um, and on tenor, feel the burn, which was written for Bernie Sanders, hmm. and um, that's a challenging song because it's in a weird time signature called fifteen eight. Uh, so, like chopping off an eighth note early and getting to the downbeat of, of one uh, an eighth note early, um, but it's a blues. It's like a funk blues, you know, hmm. just in fifteen eight with like a four bar melody. So it's like a weird. It's a weird tune, but it's really fun to play. Um, I think those two are probably my favorites on the whole album, but I don't know. I, I'm, I've never been one to pick favorites. I always have a hard time picking a favorite in anything. <laughs> yeah. All right. And I guess for the future, um, how, how has Spain kind of affected, you know, the way you approach jazz, the way you approach music, your whole experience there since this, you know, you did go to Spain after this one was recorded. I, has it affected you in any way and changed the way you look at music or the way you looked at any of your past music? Oh yeah, totally. Totally did. Um, prior to Spain, I had basically no experience in the studio. I had, 
Um, as far as uh, engineering, strictly from a sound perspective, my ears were not that good. Um, you know, there's there's a whole level of listening to music beyond the actual music that has to do with frequencies and and uh, vibrations, and that's what sound engineers are doing. And and part of my degree there was not a jazz degree; it was contemporary music and music production. So there's a lot of time in the studio. I, I got I got a lot better at understanding how sound works and how to mix and how to record. So that changed my whole process. Um, and I also got exposed to a lot of styles of music from around the world while I was there. And I recorded an album that's jazz fusion from a global perspective while I was there, challenging myself to compose um, music that in a single song incorporated multiple styles from around the world while seem while at the same time keeping the core concepts of hard-hitting New York jazz, you know, spontaneity yeah. and risk in there. So I might have a song where there's some Brazilian influence and some Peruvian influence and some American folk influence all at the same time and some Spanish rhythm influence, but at the same time we're we're still taking risks with it like like a jazz musician would, not not necessarily marrying myself into the rules of any of those styles just using using their sounds compositionally and from a producer's angle. Um and just a, as a life experience to it, it really changed me because I, I grew up in New England and, you know, uh, type A and like fast life and all that stuff, like go, yeah. go, go all the time. And, and Spain is the complete opposite of that. It it's my first, there, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's super chill. And like, you know, there's no winter really. And, and uh, it's just a beautiful time. So I definitely came back from that with a whole different look outlook on life as far as like, work-life balance and like what I want out of life and where do I want to even live? Like now I'm, I'm, I can't handle the winter anymore. <laughs> it took all the way, it took all the New Englander out of me, <laughs> almost all of it. You got a taste of the good life, you know? <laughs> yeah. I got a taste of the good life, man. It really was an incredible time and I miss it dearly. And, uh, it was also right. We, I got back, you know, six months before COVID hit. So it was like a huge life shift just coming back from there, going straight to New York and then COVID hitting and, you know, now I'm inside all the time. <laughs> so, um, definitely thinking about visiting as soon as it's safe to. Yeah. I guess how, how, how does the culture like jazz culture compare in Spain versus, you know, the U S it's a very different, I would say, you know, I was really surprised. I did some touring around Spain and France. I was surprised at how much, um, people really value the music. I mean, I've always heard that from teachers of mine and, and peers when they tour internationally, that jazz is appreciated far more overseas. And yeah. I got a firsthand look at that and it's really something else. Like they, they love it and they respect it in a way that I still am trying to wrap my head around and they have a, a open-mindedness about it that encompasses, I think every style of jazz too. They don't, in Amer in the U.S., I think um, American audiences tend to they don't necessarily want to be challenged as much. I hate to say it like that, um, but people I don't know. I just think in in the U.S., people think of jazz as one of five things, and if you don't if you don't fit into one of those five things, then people kind of don't know what to they don't really know how to react. Mm. Um, and also, and also there's less of like 
don't know, in Europe, like you can do a jazz show in a rock club, in a standing room rock club, and people will be like screaming, you know? <laughs> yeah. And in the U.S., you can do that a little bit. There are some artists that do that, and that's what I'm hoping to reach for because it's a lot more fun for me to play to a standing room than, than a sit-down. But there's a lot less of it here, and I think um, jazz has become a very safe thing here in that like a lot of the times where you play you're playing in like a concert hall you know or something like that whereas overseas there's more jazz clubs there's more in between venues where you know you can you can be the one jazz artist that month in this venue Mm -hmm. and the people that are going to come there are people that listen to everything and you know not to say that people that go to a concert hall don't listen to everything but there's just a, it's a whole different taste for it over there. Like yeah. I would play a concert hall and get a crazy response and also play like a tiny rock club in Barcelona where people are like yelling at me, like, like screaming, like as if it was like, as if I'm like American, uh, what's that boy band? Um, like a boy, like as if it was like a boy band show or something. Yeah. I'm like, what is this? I've never had this before. <laughs> you know, so there's a different energy around it. That was great. Um, there are there are a lot of great jazz musicians in Spain too. Um, Spain has a long tradition of jazz actually. Um, so it was great to meet some musicians there and collaborate. And, um, yeah, I, I can't wait to get back. I miss it a lot. I mean, it sounds awesome. I'm sure it also had to re- feel really good to have, you know, your music appreciated in such a way. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely does. And, and it's interesting seeing like in different cities and different areas, how it's changed. Like, like in um, in Spain, you know, you'll be playing to the Spanish audience and like they'll be so quiet because they're being so respectful that while you're on stage, you won't always necessarily get a vibe on if they like it. And then after they're like, wow, I loved it, <laughs> um, like more so than, you know, than other places, maybe. Whereas in the U.S., like, you know, you generally have a sense throughout the show, like, OK, are people digging this or not? Because yeah. yeah, you just get a vibe from the crowd during the show, whereas in France, it's it's like that, but definitely more of a vibe from from the crowd, and they're they're really really into it. You know, they'll be yelling and screaming. Like, I think in in the U.S., Philadelphia is one of my favorite places to play because you'll get people that'll they're not afraid to yell during the show if they mm-hmm. if they like something. You know, whereas in, yeah. in other places, it sometimes is a little bit too quiet, and it it. Uh, you know, you're getting the golf clap. <laughs> well, Philadelphia has never been accused of being too quiet. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I love playing in Philly. There's just a whole energy here and, and a long-standing jazz tradition. You know. Awesome. Well, I guess what are your plans to keep rolling this out? You know, how how do you plan on promoting this, and where can people find you know the music, find you, find everything? Sure. So my website is mikecaseyjazz.com, and uh, that's Casey with a C. And on the website, I have signed CDs and merch for the album, as well as some limited vinyl uh, copies that are coming. And um, I, in 2021, I'm actually releasing remixes of the Law of Attraction, as well as some okay. extra songs from that session that we got takes of that uh, I'm really happy with. So it was a lot of music. I think by the time I'm finished with all of it, it's like 27 songs from two days in the studio. Um between and I still have footage for that stuff too. So there'll be like another like extras law of attraction visual album coming out sometime awesome. next year to to keep the story going. Cool. Well, people should definitely follow you. Stay tuned because there's a lot of music coming from you, a lot of great music. Um, and we will have this up 
you know, on the website, on YouTube, everywhere. We'll have all his details in the description. So definitely give him a follow. Uh, check him out. The album was great. And I appreciate you taking time out to talk to us. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me, Dari. It was great to connect and uh, happy holidays to you and your family. Yeah, same to you. And we'll catch up soon. All right. Take care. Stay all safe. Right. Bye. Bye-bye.